Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. This episode begins part three of the Catechism, which is entitled Life in Christ. So part one, where we cover the creed, was entitled The Profession of Faith. Part two, where we cover the sacraments, was entitled, or is entitled, The Celebration of the Christian Mystery. And then part three, Life in Christ, is the morality section. So we go through the Ten Commandments. We talk about the Beatitudes, about uh, human freedom, and lots of really great things. So here we go. Uh, I've referenced a number of times Father Matt, a priest with whom I used to teach at one of my teaching assignments in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. Really, really great priest. I recently saw him, one of our, uh, f- each of our former students, uh, Samantha was recently married, Father Matt married her and her husband. And um, it was just so good to see him again. And I told him, I said, Father Matt, um, it's been, let's see, almost seven years since we taught together, actually more, seven or eight years. And I told him that um, years later, I find myself quoting him a lot. And as this podcast evidences, um, continuing to pass on his wisdom, which he beautifully passed on to me. So <clears throat> he studied for, I think it was a master's in moral theology at our seminary here in Philadelphia. And he said that his, I don't know if it was his thesis director, the the priest who was guiding him, who I believe was a Dominican, walked him through his studies, you know, in, intensely going through or intensively going through the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, St. Thomas Aquinas's distinctions when it comes to the moral life. And after going through so much beautiful, rich, deep, um, extensive theology, his thesis director said, okay, Matt, I want you to put aside everything you just learned. And when confronted with a moral, moral dilemma or a moral situation, simply ask, is this good? Is this good? And I thought that was so beautiful and, and contains, um, such a beautiful nugget of wisdom in that the moral life uh, is is for our good so that we can experience all the goodness that God has in store for us, all the goodness that is meant for each of our human lives. We as human beings come from a God who is truth, beauty, and goodness itself, and so we are made for the truth to experience beauty and to live in goodness. So recall the, the very first paragraph of the catechism, that, that beautiful line that says, God, in a plan of sheer goodness, created man and woman so that we too could share in his own blessed or happy life. So we are created as a result of God's plan of sheer goodness so that we could experience the life, the love, the truth, the beauty, the goodness that God experiences within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Oftentimes when it comes to Catholicism, Christianity, and understanding of God in general, I think a lot of people think um, in terms of rules. So like the Catholic Church is so hung up on X, Y, and Z or has these all these rules, um, you know, especially around, uh, it seems, human sexuality, uh, which I find very ironic given my, my pregnancy journeys. So you might have heard people say and p- people have have said to me over the years, you know, the the Catholic Church needs to get out of the bedroom. In other words, it's not the Catholic Church's business what what a couple does when it comes to, you know, sex, contraception, etc. And um, 
when I was, so after Sophia's pregnancy, so when, you know, people could see we had a little girl and I was pregnant with Declan, um, Dan and I like to find out but during our pregnancies, we like to find out the gender of our baby. And then we often pick, I think for all four kids, we've picked their names beforehand, which side note, I'm doing like side note upon side note here. But, um, you know, people, a lot of people feel a certain way about finding out or not finding out. And I love to quote my mother-in-law who says that, um, that Mary had the first gender reveal because the angel Gabriel came to her and said, you know, you will conceive and bear a son and you will name him Jesus. So that was the first gender reveal. She, she knew she was having a boy and knew what his name would be. So I like to think that I'm in, in good company with the Blessed Mother. But I understand it's, it's also really exciting to, to find out in the delivery room at the end of a, a long journey. So anyway, when I was pregnant with Declan, we knew we were having a boy. Um, everyone from, I remember the, the Target cashier, uh, also the, the Lowe's cashier, um, and then you know no, a number of people along the way told me, wow, that's great. You're having a boy. You already have a girl. Now you can be done. I was like, oh, I, I think we'll have more kids. We would love to have more kids. Then when I was pregnant with Peter, so our third, um, a number of people some people we knew and some people we did not know at all. We were vacationing in uh, Chincoteague and Assateague once that summer. And um, this random gentleman with whom we were chatting on the sidewalk turned to Dan and said, oh, are you going to have a vasectomy now? We're like, good Lord, why do people feel so free to be in the bedroom with us and tell us, you know, what we should and shouldn't do? So I found it very ironic that, um, you know, so often – What's leveled against the church, the Catholic Church, is you know it needs to get out of the bedroom. But it seems everybody else wants to be in there with us too. So I, I find that interesting. And then when I was pregnant with Lucy, our fourth, I think like people just didn't know what to say. They're like, "Oh, wow, wow, uh, congrats!" Actually, one person asked me if it was planned. I was like, "Yes, we planned. We hoped. We prayed for this, and this is awesome." So thank you, Jesus. Uh, so it's an interesting world out there. Okay, so why did I say all this? Uh, oh, so uh, a lot of um, people equate Catholicism, Christianity, practicing one's faith, one's relationship with God, ha- having to do with rules or being kind of overshadowed by rules. So the church has all these rules about all these things. So this idea or this mindset kind of paints the church as um, like this kind of harumphy old rule giver, like do this and don't do that. And, you know, to be good, you have to follow these rules. And if you don't, then you are bad. Um, and then it kind of sets God up as like a referee, like he's watching, or an accountant, like he's watching what we do, what we don't do, kind of keeping score, um, intervening every once in a while to, you know, say like, you did this wrong, or good job, or, you know, time out, you need to figure this out. So Becca only gossiped 670 times this month, so we'll let her keep playing. But Becca was selfish 1,942 times this month, so she gets the yellow card. We got to, you know, give her a little time out and uh, get her back on track. Can you imagine if God created each of us and all of this, the beauty of creation, so that he could simply be a referee, (laughs) like keeping track like this, you know, on his little tablet or, you know, standing like poised and ready to say like foul or, you know, you win or you lose or get on the sidelines. No, the whole point of rules or what the church legislates, the, the legislation, the laws that, that the church hands on from Jesus Christ 
are to get us on and then help us stay on the path that leads to God's own blessed life. So Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph one, God in a plan of sheer goodness created us so that we too could share in his own blessed or happy life. So we are made for beatitude, happiness, forever. And those rules or laws or legislation, commandments, um, are at the service of happiness. So happiness is the thing. The rules are not the thing, but the rules are the things that help us get to the thing. So happiness is the thing, the thing for which we were created in God's loving plan. And the rules are supposed to support us, guide us, help us get there. I think there's often a focus on and and kind of railing against the rules, quote unquote, because thanks to the wounds of original sin, we don't want to be told what to do. We want to stay where it's warm and comfy, uh, where I can be a little lazy and a little selfish and, you know, maybe make a little sacrifice here and there, maybe change my life a little, little there, but, you know, not change too much. Definitely not overhaul it and give it over to the Lord. I don't know about you, but I've been in confession a handful of times where the priest has said at the end, like, oh, that was a great confession, you know, thorough examination of conscience, examination of conscience. And I kind of like puff up my chest a little bit. Oh, thanks, Father. But then I've also had confessions where after confessing my sins, you know, the priest will say, um, you know, it sounds like you're struggling with pride or it sounds like you know you need to pray for these people you gossiped about or whatever and I'm kind of like oh like you're gonna tell me to change like is that what I came in here for and it's like yes because those things that I'm doing those sins that I'm committing have committed um are hurting others hurting God hurting myself and not contributing to anyone's happiness in fact they're taking away from my and the people whom I've hurt, their happiness. And so it's, um, you know, it's a medicine. It's a, sometimes a surgery to get those things out of our lives, to heal from them by the grace of God so that we can experience the happiness, the blessedness that God has for each of us. Before Lent, we had a tradition, as many families do, of doing a Friday family movie night. So we finish dinner, clean up, get into pajamas, pop some popcorn, and then pick a family-friendly movie that hopefully everyone, if not everyone, most people would enjoy. And then uh, thanks to my friend and Catholic Light podcast listener, Amy Leahy. Shout out to Amy Leahy. We took a break during Lent and did family game night on Fridays, uh, which was a nice, nice break and a great idea. And now that Easter has, we've celebrated Easter, we're back to family movie night. So since Easter, we have kind of gotten on a kick of inspirational sport movies. So my dad, my dad, it's cute, my dad watches with us. And um, he suggested a few weeks ago, Cool Runnings, which if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's, you know, decades old at this point about uh, the Jamaican bobsled team that went to the Olympics. And uh, so now you'll find my kids lining up chairs or couch cushions sitting in a line and then kind of like swaying in unison left and right saying feel the rhythm feel the rhyme get on up it's bobsled time cool runnings um after that we watched miracle which again if you haven't seen it i highly recommend it it's about the 1980 u.s men's hockey team who won the gold at the olympics and defeated um the seemingly undefeatable Indefeatable, undefeatable, undefeated Soviet team. And then uh, last Friday we watched The Rookie, 
baseball movie, which features my patron saint, St. Rita of Kasha, which is awesome. So I love these inspirational sports movies because they illustrate, as is apropos for our topic today, how rules are at the service of something greater. So it's not about the, the rules for rules' sake, but about becoming a better person, better people, a better team, and achieving not just a gold medal or, you know, notoriety, fame, etc., but uh, working as a team to achieve basically this this beautiful endeavor of doing one's best together and well. So there's this part in Miracle, the the hockey movie, where Kurt Russell plays the coach. Um, Herb Brooks and he is just they I think the team plays a game kind of like a small time game after the game he has the guys go back on the ice and he just runs them again and again and again I don't know what the term is in hockey but it's like like suicides and running where you're just like going back and forth back and forth and it seems like he's doing this for hours he just you know they finish and then he has the the other coach blow the whistle and he says again so they, you know, skate across the ice again, skate across again, and he just runs them. And you can see as time passes, like they are just, oh, they are just flagging. They're they're running out of energy and and um, just wondering like, what is the point of this? And so prior to this exercise, he had asked the the twenty men who now make up the U.S. men's hockey team their name and where they're from from where they are, and for what team they played prior to becoming a part of the U.S. men's hockey team. So you saw, you know, scenes previously where guys are, because are, they don't know each other. They've come from different parts of the U.S. They've come from from different teams. Some of them played together, but but many don't know each other. So they're introducing themselves and trying to, trying to bond as a team. And so previously you saw, you know, each of these guys introducing themselves, their hometown, and teams naming the team for which they played. So after just, just running these guys into the ground, it seems uh, kind of pointless and um, almost mean. Like, what are you doing? The other coaches are looking at him like, what are you doing? Like, it's late. You know, the guy who runs the rink has already turned off the lights, left them the keys because he's gone home. And still, the coach is, is just running, running, running the men. So... As they're going back and forth and just look like they're ready to tap out completely, one of the guys who later becomes the team captain, Mike Ruzzione, nicknamed Rizzo, he, he stands up wearily and he says, I'm Mike Ruzzione from Winthrop, Massachusetts, or excuse me, Winthrop, Massachusetts. No, I can't do the, the New England accent. Winthrop, Massachusetts. And the, and the coach Kurt Russell, Herb Brooks, says, who do you play for? He says, I play for the United States of America. And then Kurt Russell, the coach, sends him home. He says, okay, we're done. So the, the point of those drills we see as audience members, the point of, of um, you know, being pushed, 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 training, conditioning, seemingly pointless drills, turns out to be the thing that contributes to the thing. So it's it's the thing, the mode, that brings them together as a team, that bonds them, that helps them break through and realize, like, I'm not here for myself. I'm not here for the couple guys I might know, but I'm here for my team uh, to move forward as as one to achieve, you know, hopefully this great thing, which they, they go on to achieve. 
So it's not about rules or drills for rules or drills sake, but about becoming a team, playing their best, and then striving to, to win the gold. These men practiced so hard and so well that their bodies became better and stronger, and they were conditioned enough to last to the end of the game and win. So it had been said of the Soviets that they, they basically um, they outplayed their opponents because they were so fit that they could make it to the end of the game and you know still be ready to play, whereas their opponents were just not in as great of condition and were just so tired by the end that they could no longer you know, pass, shoot, score effectively. So the men's USA team had trained and trained and trained. They were conditioned. Those rules, those drills um, prepared them to then play the game well and ultimately win. So Jesus, through the church, offers us rules that train us. They condition us. They strengthen us. They sharpen us and our quote-unquote skills so we can play the game well or live our lives well and win or enjoy eternal life forever. I realize it's a bit confusing to use these sports analogies after I just said, like, God's not a referee. (laughs) But all analogies break down at some point. But the point is this, that, um, you know, these rules, these guidelines, Ten Commandments, Beatitudes, moral theology are to train us, strengthen us, prepare us, condition us to live the good life, to open us up to receive that blessedness, that happiness, that more that God wants and has for each of us. Let's take a look at paragraph 1704, which says, The human person participates in the light and power of the divine spirit. By his reason, he is capable of understanding the order of things established by the creator. By free will, he is capable of directing himself toward his true good. He finds his perfection in seeking and loving what is true and good. So he finds his perfection in seeking and loving what is true and good. The moral life helps, excuse me, the moral life aims to help us know the truth with our rational intellect and choose the good with our free will. So as human beings, we are body and soul. Uh, We are graced, gifted with a rational intellect to know things, to know uh, especially the truth, and with a free will to choose things, especially the good. We don't find just a little happiness, but as paragraph 1704 just said, our own perfection. So he finds his perfection in seeking and loving what is true and good. We've talked before about how, how all things have an end, a goal, a purpose. So the, the end, the goal, the purpose of a clock is to tell time. The end of a sandwich is to be eaten and provide nourishment. The end of a lawnmower is to cut grass. The end of a printer is to print paper. The end or goal or purpose of human beings is to be happy. So happiness is our end, our goal, our purpose. The whole point of our humanity is to be happy. And we find our happiness that goal, that end, that purpose, that point, by looking to the one who made us and all of creation, and then he'll show us how to get there with the quote-unquote manuals of the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, etc. Paragraph 1700 says, The dignity of the human person is rooted in his creation in the image and likeness of God. It is fulfilled in his vocation to divine beatitude. So our dignity, our value, our worth, our goodness is rooted in our creation in the image and likeness of God 
who is goodness itself. So we are infinitely valuable, worthy, and good because we come from goodness itself. And then our dignity, our human dignity, is fulfilled, or it comes to its completion, its fruition, etc., in our vocation to divine beatitude. So in ultimately, we are, we are called, vocation comes from the, the root word vocare, to call. We are called to be happy. We are made to be happy. That paragraph, paragraph 1700, goes on to say, the human person does or does not conform to the good. So as, as free human beings, and we'll talk, um, I think, on next week's episode about the catechism has a whole section devoted to man's freedom. Uh, we can choose with our free will to conform or not conform to the good. So we can live our lives according to that reality of goodness, not just like what's good for you is good for you, what's good for me is good for me, but what is objectively good, this objective reality outside of us. Uh, we can conform to that or not conform to that. We can live our lives such that it, uh, what's another word for conform, such that it aligns with the reality of goodness or moves away from, rejects, is not consistent with that objective reality of goodness. Those examples of the clock, the sandwich, the lawnmower, the printer, uh, we can't put them, put the printer in water, throw the clock against the wall, etc., and then expect each of those things to work. With our humanity, we can't expect to do whatever with our humanity and then expect it to quote-unquote work or achieve happiness. So we consult the manual, the rule book, and follow it, not for the sake of the rules themselves, but so that the rules can form, shape, condition, strengthen us, so we're prepared to receive heaven and to enjoy God's own blessed life for all of eternity. So we get glimpses of it now, and then God willing, enjoy it for eternity, forever, which is so hard to wrap our, our minds around. Um, I'll end with two, two images from two of C.S. Lewis's works. One, The Last Battle, which is the seventh and, and final book in the, the Chronicles of Narnia. And then his book, The Great Divorce, where he talks about, it's actually his response to, hmm, someone talked about the, the divorce between heaven and hell. He, so he entitles his book, The Great Divorce. In The Last Battle, when Aslan, the Christ figure, comes and basically wins the battle, sets everyone free, there are, my, my memory is a little bit foggy, but I believe it's the dwarves who have been so conditioned to living in darkness, kind of like crouched down, hunched over, eyes closed, that even when they're set free and they're brought into the light, they remain kind of like hunched over their their eyes are squinting because they're so not used to the light and so they don't they are not able to enjoy the fullness of what is put before them in the great divorce as people enter heaven one of the things they they first notice is that as they walk along the grass of heaven um, the the blades are hard and kind of sharp and one of the I think it's one of the guides guiding the people into heaven says um things are more real here so it's it's reality you're encountering and if you haven't prepared along the way it's it's a little shocking okay it's a little tough on your feet I think these two images beautifully illustrate how heaven is not just uh, this experience of like okay you push the button all the work and hard stuff is over and now you like kick back in your lazy boy with a pint of Ben and Jerry's and like watch Netflix for all of eternity as though it's like all about like the pleasure, the comfort, the not having to work. 
these two images illustrate that uh, heaven and the blessed life for which God makes us, to which he calls us, is this incredibly beautiful, awesome reality for which we need to be prepared and, again, strengthened, conditioned, kind of opened up to so as to be filled with, with all the goodness and the glory that God has for us. So let's just end the, the first half of this episode by praying for uh, the grace for ourselves and for others to see kind of like the rules, the commands rightly, and to embrace them well in our, our actual day-to-day lives so that God can, can open us up to give us whatever it is and all that he wants to give us. So we'll pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, all of your teachings, uh, especially now as we embark on part three, all of your teachings that have to do with the moral life. Please give us the grace to see your teachings rightly, not as constraints or um, like shackles that hold us back, but things that that strengthen us, perfect us, and open us up to all the beautiful things you wish to give us, all the wonderful things you have in store for us. We pray this for ourselves, for our family members and friends, and for, for each and every, every human person that we may a- embrace your teaching so that you can draw us closer to you and closer to the, the beautiful life you have for us, the end for which we, cre- we were created. We offer this up in Jesus' name, amen, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, we'll take a brief break and then return on the second side to read paragraphs 1691 through 1729. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1691 through 1729. Part 3, Life in Christ. Christian, recognize your dignity, and now that you share in God's own nature, do not return to your former base condition by sinning. Remember who is your head and of whose body you are a member. Never forget that you have been rescued from the power of darkness and brought into the light of the kingdom of God. The symbol of the faith confesses the greatness of God's gifts to man in his work of creation and even more in redemption and sanctification. What faith confesses, the sacraments communicate. By the sacraments of rebirth, Christians have become children of God, partakers of the divine nature. Coming to see in the faith their new dignity, Christians are called to lead henceforth a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. They are made capable of doing so by the grace of Christ and the gifts of his Spirit, which they receive through the sacraments and through prayer. Christ Jesus always did what was pleasing to the Father and always lived in perfect communion with him. Likewise, Christ's disciples are invited to live in the sight of the Father, who sees in secret, in order to become perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Incorporated into Christ by baptism, Christians are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, and so participate in the life of the risen Lord. Following Christ and united with him, Christians can strive to be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love by conforming their thoughts, words, and actions to the mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, and by following his example. Justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God, sanctified and called to be saints, Christians have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
This spirit of the Son teaches them to pray to the Father, and, having become their life, prompts them to act so as to bear the fruit of the Spirit by charity in action. Healing the wounds of sin, the Holy Spirit renews us interiorly through a spiritual transformation. He enlightens and strengthens us to live as children of light through all that is good and right and true. The way of Christ leads to life. A contrary way leads to destruction. The gospel parable of the two ways remains ever-present in the catechesis of the church. It shows the importance of moral decisions for our salvation. There are two ways, the one of life, the other of death. But between the two, there is a great difference. Catechesis has to reveal in all charity the joy and the demands of the way of Christ. Catechesis for the newness of life in, in him should be a catechesis of the Holy Spirit, the interior master of life according to Christ, a gentle guest and friend who inspires, guides, corrects, and strengthens this life. A catechesis of grace, for it is by grace that we are saved, and again it is by grace that our works can bear fruit for eternal life. A catechesis of the Beatitudes, for the way of Christ is summed up in the Beatitudes, the only path that leads to the eternal Beatitude for which the human heart longs. A catechesis of sin and forgiveness, for unless man acknowledges that he is a sinner, he cannot know the truth about himself, which is a condition for acting justly. And without the offer of forgiveness, he would not be able to bear this truth. A catechesis of the human virtues, which causes one to grasp the beauty and attraction of right dispositions towards goodness. A catechesis of the Christian virtues of faith, hope, and charity, generously inspired by the example of the saints. A catechesis of the twofold commandment of charity, set forth in the Decalogue. An ecclesial catechesis, for it is through the manifold exchanges of spiritual goods in the communion of saints that Christian life can grow, develop, and be communicated. The first and last point of reference of this catechesis will always be Jesus Christ himself, who is the way and the truth and the life. It is by looking to him in faith that Christ's faithful can hope that he himself fulfills his promises in them, and that, by loving him with the same love with which he has loved them, they may perform works in keeping with their dignity. I ask you to consider that our Lord Jesus Christ is your true head, and that you are one of his members. He belongs to you as the head belongs to its members. All that is his is yours, his spirit, his heart, his body and soul, and all his faculties. You must make use of all of these as of your own, to serve, praise, love, and glorify God. You belong to him as members belong to their head. And so he longs for you to use all that is in you, as if it were his own, for the service and glory of the Father. For me to live is Christ. Excuse me, for to me to live is Christ. Section 1, Man's Vocation, Life in the Spirit. Life in the Holy Spirit fulfills the vocation of man, chapter 1. This life is made up of divine charity and human solidarity, chapter 2. It is graciously offered as salvation, chapter 3. Chapter 1, the dignity of the human person. The dignity of the human person is rooted in his creation in the image and likeness of God, article 1. It is fulfilled in his vocation to divine beatitude, article 2. It is essential to a human being freely to direct himself to this fulfillment, Article 3. By his deliberate actions, Article 4, the human person does or does not conform to the good promised by God and attested by moral conscience, Article 5. Human beings make their own contribution to their interior growth. 
They make their whole sentient and spiritual lives into means of this growth. Article 6. With the help of grace, they grow in virtue. Article 7. Avoid sin, and if they sin, they entrust themselves, as did the prodigal son, to the mercy of our Father in heaven. Article 8. In this way, they attain to the perfection of charity. Article 1. Man, the image of God. Christ, in the very revelation of the mystery of the Father and of his love, makes man fully manifest to himself and brings to light his exalted vocation. It is in Christ, the image of the invisible God, that man has been created in the image and likeness of the Creator. It is in Christ, Redeemer and Savior, that the divine image, disfigured in man by the first sin, has been restored to its original beauty and ennobled by the grace of God. The divine image is present in every man. It shines forth in the communion of persons, in the likeness of the unity of the divine persons among themselves. Reference chapter 2. Endowed with a spiritual and immortal soul, the human person is the only creature on earth that God has willed for its own sake. From his conception, he is destined for eternal beatitude. The human person participates in the light and power of the divine spirit. By his reason, he is capable of understanding the order of things established by the creator. By free will, he is capable of directing himself toward his true good. He finds his perfection in seeking and loving what is true and good. By virtue of his soul and his spiritual powers of intellect and will, man is endowed with freedom, an outstanding manifestation of the divine image. By his reason, man recognizes the voice of God, which urges him to do what is good and avoid what is evil. Everyone is obliged to follow this law, which makes itself heard in conscience and is fulfilled in the love of God and of neighbor. Living a moral life bears witness to the dignity of the person. Man, enticed by the evil one, abused his freedom at the very beginning of history. He succumbed to temptation and did what was evil. He still desires the good, but his nature bears the wound of original sin. He is now inclined to evil and subject to error. Man is divided in himself. As a result, the whole life of men, both individual and social, shows itself to be a struggle and a dramatic one between good and evil, between light and darkness. By his passion, Christ delivered us from Satan and from sin. He merited for us the new life in the Holy Spirit. His grace restores what sin had damaged in us. He who believes in Christ becomes the Son of God. This filial adoption transforms him by giving him the ability to follow the example of Christ. It makes him capable of acting rightly and doing good. In union with his Savior, the disciple attains the perfection of charity, which is holiness. Having matured in grace, the moral life blossoms into eternal life and the glory of heaven. In brief, Christ makes man fully manifest to man himself and brings to light his exalted vocation. Endowed with a spiritual soul, with intellect and with free will, the human person is from his very conception ordered to God and destined for eternal beatitude. He pursues his perfection in seeking and loving what is true and good. In man, true freedom is an outstanding manifestation of the divine image. Man is obliged to follow the moral law, which urges him to do what is good and avoid what is evil. This law makes itself heard in his conscience. Man, having been wounded in his nature by original sin, is subject to error and inclined to evil in exercising his freedom. He who believes in Christ has new life in the Holy Spirit. The moral life, increased and brought to maturity and grace, is to reach its fulfillment in the glory of heaven. Article 2, Our Vocation to Beatitude The Beatitudes The Beatitudes are at the heart of Jesus' preaching. 
They take up the promises made to the chosen people since Abraham. The Beatitudes fulfill the promises by ordering them no longer merely to the possession of a territory, but to the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. The Beatitudes depict the countenance of Jesus Christ and portray his charity. They express the vocation of the faithful associated with the glory of his passion and resurrection. They shed light on the actions and attitudes characteristic of the Christian life. They are the paradoxical promises that sustain hope in the midst of tribulations. They proclaim the blessings and rewards already secured, however dimly, for Christ's disciples. They have begun in the lives of the Virgin Mary and all the saints. The Desire for Happiness The Beatitudes respond to the natural desire for happiness. This desire is of divine origin. God has placed it in the human heart in order to draw man to the one who alone can fulfill it. We all want to live happily. In the whole human race, there is no one who does not assent to this proposition, even before it is fully articulated. That's St. Augustine. How is it then that I seek you, Lord, since in seeking you, my God, I seek a happy life? Let me seek you so that my soul may live, for my body draws life from my soul, and my soul draws life from you. Also, St. Augustine. God alone satisfies. St. Thomas Aquinas. The Beatitudes reveal the goal of human existence, the ultimate end of human acts. God calls us to his own Beatitude. This vocation is addressed to each individual personally, but also to the church as a whole, the new people made up of those who have accepted the promise and live from it in faith. Christian Beatitude The New Testament uses several expressions to characterize the Beatitude to which man, excuse me, God calls man. The coming of the kingdom of God, the vision of God, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, entering into the joy of the Lord, entering into God's rest. There we shall rest and see, we shall see and love, we shall love and praise. Behold what will be at the end without end, for what other end do we have if not to reach the kingdom which has no end? That's also St. Augustine. God put us in the world to know, to love, and to serve him, and so to come to paradise. Beatitude makes us partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life. With beatitude, man enters into the glory of Christ and into the joy of the Trinitarian life. Such beatitude surpasses the understanding and powers of man. It comes from an entirely free gift of God, whence it is called supernatural, as is the grace that disposes man to enter into the divine joy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It is true, because of the greatness and inexpressible glory of God, that man shall not see me and live, for the Father cannot be grasped. But because of God's love and goodness toward us, and because he can do all things, he goes so far as to grant those who love him the privilege of seeing him. For what is impossible for men is possible for God. That's St. Irenaeus.
The beatitude we promised confronts us with decisive, excuse me, we are promised, confronts us with decisive moral choices. It invites us to purify our hearts of bad instincts and to seek the love of God above all else. It teaches us that true happiness is not found in riches or well-being, in human fame or power, or in any human achievement, however beneficial it may be, such as science, technology, and art, or indeed in any creative, excuse me, in any creature, but in God alone, the source of every good and of all love. All bow down before wealth. Wealth is that to which the multitude of men pay an instinctive homage. They measure happiness by wealth and by wealth they measure respectability. It is a homage resulting from a profound faith, that with wealth he may do all things. Wealth is one idol of the day, and notoriety is a second. Notoriety, or the making of a noise in the world, it may be called newspaper fame, has come to be considered a great good in itself and a ground of veneration. That's John Henry Cardinal Newman. The Decalogue, the Sermon on the Mount, and the apostolic catechesis described for us the paths that lead to the kingdom of heaven. Sustained by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we tread them step by step by everyday acts. By the working of the word of Christ, we slowly bear fruit in the church to the glory of God. In brief, the Beatitudes take up and fulfill God's promises from Abraham on by ordering them to the kingdom of heaven. They respond to the desire for happiness that God has placed in the human heart. The Beatitudes teach us the final end to which God calls us, the kingdom, the vision of God, participation in the divine nature, eternal life, filiation, rest in God. The Beatitude of eternal life is a gratuitous gift of God. It is supernatural, as is the grace that leads us there. The Beatitudes confront us with decisive choices concerning earthly goods. They purify our hearts in order to teach us to love God above all things. The beatitude of heaven sets the standards for discernment in the use of earthly goods in keeping with the law of God. That brings us to the end of our reading selection, the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me for another week. Between this week and next week's episode, uh, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast and on Facebook under Rebecca Doherty. Please pray for me. I will be praying for you. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends, and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.